chapter 9 for this Palm Sunday. Uh, and uh, so if you wanted to turn there, we're going to be spending most of our time in uh, verses uh, uh, in verse 51. Um, so, but um, I'll be honest with you, uh, Palm Sunday is one of those repeating uh, holidays that, that ends up being uh, a little bit difficult sometimes. As a pastor, they're just repeating holidays. You feel a lot of pressure to come up with, with something new uh, every time, and it's hard. I've been doing this for, you know, uh, over, well over a decade, and, uh, and it gets harder to, and harder to come up with new Palm Sunday sermons every year, and you feel like you're repeating yourself sometimes. Um, and, and that doesn't, uh, it's not a bad problem to have, it's a good problem, but it's just to warn you why I don't necessarily preach on all the holidays. Like, I don't preach a Mother's Day sermon because at some point you just run out of Mother's Day sermons. So, uh, but I think it's important for us to recognize those holidays that are, that are particularly Christian. And, and, and when I was going through this, when I was looking for something, I actually went back a little bit further than the actual Palm Sunday story to this story in Luke 9, which I found fascinating. Um... And really, it was a language thing that tipped my brain off when I was coming here. So, in Luke 9, I, I was reading in the NIV because I was just kind of figuring out, uh, okay, so what's speaking to me here? And I came across this verse, which I already knew, but it just something felt off about it. And this is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. At the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So that was uh, what I read. And that felt off to me. There was something I was like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar, but it's not quite familiar. Now, those of you who know me or you've heard me say this, I grew up in a, in, a, in a pretty fundamentalist church, and I grew up reading and memorizing the King James. In fact, reading and memorizing the King James only. And uh, that was a big part of my, uh, of my fundamentalist upbringing. So what I was remembering and why this felt off to me was because in the King James version, it's, it's just better. And it came to pass when the time had come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I think that we can all agree that that's just better in every way. You know, and I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to be snobbish about the NIV. I love the NIV. I use the NIV. But the reality is this is just better. It's more poetic. It, it rings in the ear more. It sounds better in your tongue as you say it out loud. It is, it is a nicer image to hold into your brain. It's easier to memorize. And, and, and I think it's fair to give the King James Bible its kudos in that it is the most, I would argue, the most beautiful translation of the scriptures into the English language. It's okay for us to say that. Um, what's my, my upbringing, when they were King James only, they believed the right thing for the wrong reason. So they believe that we should read the King James Version, not because it was beautiful, but because they argued that it was the most accurate translation of the scriptures. That is completely false. There's no accuracy to that at all. It is even the writers of the King James Bible, even the translators of the King James Bible did not believe that they were doing the most accurate translation at the time. And in fact, if you read their introduction to the King James Bible, uh, one of the things that they say is that it's intended to be read aloud in churches, and their goal was to do the most beautiful rendition of the Bible for reading aloud. And it's interesting, uh, and that made me think a lot about a lot of things. Isn't this it, like it, it's it's a nice, it's a much nicer way of doing it, and 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 it's literally better in every way because it's actually even more accurate. 
Now, we can go all to the Greek. This is a verse in Greek. I'm not going to uh, read it. And if you're really curious and nerdy about the last one, that's the Society for Biblical Literature, Greek New Testament. That's their version. If you're wondering who put out this Greek version. Um, I'm not going to read that uh, all because I'll get it wrong, but I'll read this short part here, which is the most important. Uh, and this is autos to prosporin esterizen. And it literally means uh, he, his face, steadfastly set. So the King James is actually, in this case, which is rare, much more literal. He literally, the face steadfastly set is, is what the King James is translating. And the King James Version used the idiom of the time, the, the expression of the time, and used it in current English because it was a better way of doing this. And, and, I, and this struck me as interesting, and I want to spend a little bit of time here, and I hope we don't nerd out too much, but I, but I think that this is important. Because I would argue that if we only read the NIV translation of this, as much as I love the NIV and I use the NIV and the people who translated the NIV are good, don't get me twisted on that. As If we only read the NIV translation, we would have lost something. That even though it is a rougher translation to say that he set his face towards Jerusalem, it's a rougher image, it's rougher language, that it's more beautiful, it's more engaging, it's more interactive. And I think that it's interesting that when we look at the culture from which the NIV emerged, because the New International Version has really only appeared in the last 50, 60 years or so. And it, like a bunch of translations, like the New Living Translation, like the Good News Translation that I know that you guys used around here for a long time, a lot of those translations, their priority was ease of reading and simplicity of, uh, of communication. And I would argue that that's a, those are very good goals, but if you come to Christianity looking for ease and looking for simplicity, you're gonna find yourself not really approaching Christianity. That those are goals that have been created in the last 60 years of evangelicalism that are not congruent with following Jesus. And our desire for ease and comfort and this tradition that wants things to be simple and safe, it might lead us in the wrong direction. And I think it's fair for us to ask the question, if our desire to make Christianity something simple and easy to understand, if we've lost some of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is important because as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, as we're talking about in this chapter, Jesus is not dealing with a situation that is in any way simple or safe. Because if we back up just a little bit in the chapter, Jesus has found himself just performing a miracle. Somebody brought him a sick child who kept throwing himself into the fire, and Jesus cast out this demon and healed this boy. And while everyone was marveling at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples. So the thing that people were marveling at was that he had healed this demon-possessed boy. Jesus had literally demonstrated in that moment his power over things spiritual and things physical. He had had this moment where he declared himself in his actions that he was sovereign over everything in the world. And in this action, Jesus declares that he's in charge of things seen and unseen. And while people are still buzzing about that, 
he says this. He pulls his disciples aside. As everybody, everybody's buzzing about how awesome he is. He pulls them aside and says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. I find this a really fascinating and true statement about humanity. They didn't understand something and they were afraid to ask about it. And how often have we been in situations where we knew that we didn't know something, but we'd rather not know that thing. So let's just not ask about it. There's something uncomfortable there. There's something potentially dangerous there. There's something that is not simple and easy and safe there. Let's just shrink back and not ask the question at all. And this is what the disciples do. We'd rather not ask the question because we don't understand what's going on. But we see, but, and while we recognize that in us, we also ought to recognize the consequences because very quickly, the disciples start arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. The very next verse, so they don't understand, they don't ask, and then an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Isn't this interesting that the consequence of not understanding and being afraid to ask means that you start arguing about stuff that doesn't matter. They've completely lost their way at this point. Their argument in the midst of watching Jesus declare himself sovereign over things seen and unseen, over our physical bodies and the spiritual powers of this world, their response to that is to start arguing amongst themselves over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They lose their way. We start arguing about stuff that doesn't matter, and I think that these things are connected when we don't want to know and we don't understand, we start arguing about irrelevant stuff. And not just things that are irrelevant, things that are wrong and distracting from uh, the purpose of what we are trying to do. And this is a demonstration of their ignorance. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me for his the one who is least among you, who is the greatest. And again, to further demonstrate, so Jesus gives them this beautiful moment where he's just like, look, you gotta, it's not about who's gonna be the greatest, guys. You're having an argument that doesn't matter. It's who is going to be like this little child, whoever's gonna be the least among you will be the greatest. And then John pops up uh, and says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because we, he is not one of us. R really? Why did you do that? And we see that the disciples have such little understanding of what Jesus is doing is that they're trying to put it into a box that they can understand. If they're trying to take what Jesus is doing and they're saying like, yeah, Jesus, you're doing this amazing, awesome stuff, but can we have some branding ownership over that? Because like he's doing his thing, but he's not, he didn't do what we do. And even though he's doing it in your name, we... No, we, we would rather have some, some control over the perception of what is going on in the world. We think that it would be better if it was just us. It's a complete understanding of what Jesus is doing in the world. They're asking and they're saying, but what you're doing, Jesus, that actually belongs to us. And, and we want to control it so that no one can, else can touch it without our permission. 
Because it's simpler and easier and safer if you don't have to ask yourself, is that person one of us or not one of us? If you can control it, it's easier. But in the midst of this confusion, and in the midst of this misunderstanding, and in the midst of this lack of support, Jesus says this, that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I'm sorry, it just really bothers me that resolute, this sentence is not easier to understand than steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. Not only is it less poetic, it's not easier to understand. The word resolute is not that much more familiar than set his face. Sorry, that is a, my little uh, anger at the, at the NIV translators. Um, but he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem literally means city of peace. But Jesus understood, even at this point in time, when he says that he's about to be delivered over to the hands of men, that this city that he was going to was not going to be a city of peace for him. That it was going to be a city of torture, it was going to be a city of rejection, it is going to be a city of death, and he planted his face towards there. That's what the word asterism literally means. We say steadfastly set, but it's the, the same root word as you would from like planting a tree or planting a foundation. He put his stick in the sand and he said, I'm going in this direction. He headed in that way. And as much as those around him and those who he counted on to support him had their heads stuck in the sand, and as much torture, and, 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 and he, he, he went forward to Jerusalem. And as much as it was a place of torture and of death, it was also a place of purpose and obedience. For, because from the beginning, God had planned this, that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be delivered into the hands of men and be handed over and be killed. And it's interesting that, that we want to make Christianity this, this religion of ease and simplicity when the, the themes and the actions that we're being given are the furthest thing but from that. This is not about ease and simplicity. This is about Jesus saying, I am going through torture and death and rejection and pain and misunderstanding and everything that is going on around me. I am firmly aiming towards that understanding what's on the other side. And the thing that I think that we have to learn from this is that there are true driving forces in Jesus as he resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. We're given no indication that Jesus is a masochist. We're no, given no indication that Jesus is looking forward to this experience of being tortured and put to death by the brute force of the Roman Empire and, and, and the religious leaders. We see no evidence of that, but what we do see is that Jesus had two driving forces in him pushing him forward, and those were purpose and obedience. First one, obedience. Jesus says over and over again that he does the will of the Father. This is in John 5.30. He makes it very clear, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is but just, for I do not seek to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus understood that his goals were bigger than his decisions, and that he had someone that he ought to obey, and that person was the Father. So his desire to please the Father outweighed his desire for simplicity and ease. His desire to please the Father outweighed his desire and overrode his desire for his own fulfillment. Obedience overrode fear. Obedience overrode desire for safety and ease. And obedience drove him to make 
difficult decisions that I'm going to go to Jerusalem despite knowing and understanding exactly what waits for me in Jerusalem. Jesus was driven by obedience and we ought to be driven by obedience as well. God has called us to things. He has given us commands and some of those commands are extremely difficult. Love your neighbor as yourself is extremely difficult. And yet that is the command. And that desire to please God, to do what he has told us to do, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves, needs to override our own desire to be right, to be justified, to be affirmed, to, be, to, be, to, to, to have clarity and simplicity and ease. Loving our neighbor is increasingly complex in a more complex world, and that is going to lead us to make difficult decisions. Let us not shrink back from that because we'd rather things be simpler and easier by saying, well, you're not of us, so you're not one of us. Obedience drives us forward. We can become more specific, and you will be more specific in your own life, but obedience needs to drive us through what is difficult. But it wasn't just obedience, it was purpose. And purpose and joy, this is really important from Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says this, for the joy that was set before him, meaning Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I think this is so interesting in our tradition specifically, that the sentence starts off, and we've ignored this, I feel like I've ignored it for most of my life as a Christian, that this starts off with, for the joy that was set before him. It's okay to do difficult things for the joy on the other side. Jesus understood that, that on the other side of obedience, on the other side of this, was the joy, and it was the joy of receiving salvation for all people, these people that he loved, this world in which God had placed him, the joy of, of having all things reconciled to him, this world that was fractured and broken and separated, where we're disconnected from, from ourselves, from God, first of all, disconnected from ourselves, disconnected from each other, disconnected even from the planet in which we, that, that we inhabit, that all of those can be reconciled and brought back together in Jesus through what he did on the cross for the joy that was set before him he saw that on the other side and said I want that more than I want simplicity and ease on this side of the cross I'd rather go through the cross and get that and, for the, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father that joy that was set before him that, that, that affirmation and that, and that reconciliation and that salvation on the other side of the cross drove him and it's okay to want joy it's okay to want the things of God. It's okay to do it. So if you've got something that God is calling you to do that is difficult, it is okay to do it for the joy. It is okay to do it for the reward. It's okay to do it for the things that God has promised. Sometimes in my tradition, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, we want to be more Christian than Jesus. We want to be more Christian than the Bible. And we want to do and obey simply because it's a good thing to obey and we're going to grit our teeth and we're not going to look forward to the rewards because that, that divides us and then and, and we're not, you know, we're, we, then we're just, we're, our, our motives aren't pure. Well, none of our motives are pure at any time. 
And what Jesus has done is he's promised us that on the other side of obedience is healing and blessing for this world. On the other side of obedience is life eternal with him. On the other side of obedience is joy. It's okay to obey for those things. It's okay to value the things of God over the things of this world and to work to receive the things that God has promised. It's okay to want that. I was just struck by this, that, that if I were to say to my children today that if you clean the garbage that is accumulated in our back alley, I will take you to Dairy Queen. That's a real thing, by the way. You should be paying attention. If you clean the garbage in the back alley, I will take you to Dairy Queen, right? You should look. You get a bag and some gloves and, you know, like some work gloves. And anyway... Some of our bags get torn open by wild animals and by people looking for things. And when the snow melts, it needs to be picked up. <laughs> but if I asked you to do that, and hypothetically promised that we would go to Dairy Queen if you did that, and you did that, and we're like, well, I should just really pick up the garbage for the joy of picking up the garbage in and of itself. It's a good thing to do. I think it would be a I think it diminishes my love of picking up garbage if I do it for the reward on the other side of that. That makes me less faithful and obedient because I'm, I'm not doing it for the ice cream. I'm only doing it for the joy of the garbage. That's ridiculous, right? It's completely ridiculous. And it would be weird... And, and, and if my kids did this and, 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 like, and did the thing that I asked them to do and I was like, okay, let's go to Dairy Queen and they're like, no, we don't want that. That will diminish our efforts. I would be like, y'all are weird. <laughs> Something is wrong, right? But how often are we doing that with God? Are we trying to do that with God? That we're trying to lean back from the rewards and the promises of eternal life, of joy in this life, of seeing the goodness of the Lord in the, in the, in the land of the living. How often are we shrinking back from that because we want to have some more pure spiritual experience? Jesus did it for the joy. His joy was seeing us individually and as a group reconciled with each other and with God. He did it for the joy, and it's okay for you to do it for the joy as well. He wanted that reconciliation, and, it, and he wanted that rescue and repair, and it drove him to set his place to the torture, place of torture and death for what was on the other side. It's okay for us to set our faces through what is difficult and complex and hard for the joy that is on the other side. So I would challenge us to do this today. And as we remember and think about Jesus in the midst of confusion, in the midst of misunderstanding, in the midst of being left alone, in the midst of understanding the difficulties on the other side, in the midst of all of that, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And I think it is incredibly fair for us to ask the question of ourselves, and I am asking it of you, and I am asking it of myself, what need we set our faces towards? What have we been avoiding and running from? Like Jonah ran to Tarshish, Tarshish on the other side of the world when God called him go, to go to Nineveh. How many of us are on a boat waiting for it to sink? 
when we need to be setting our face towards Jerusalem, when we need to be setting our face towards loving our neighbor as ourselves, when we need to be setting our face towards doing what is difficult and complex and possibly painful for the obe- for, for, for obedi- obedience to the Lord and the joy that is set before us. So I would ask as we prepare for this table where we remember what Jesus endured, where we remember what Jesus was setting his face toward, where we commemorate that, I would ask us to prayerfully ask ourselves the question, what are we, what need we set our face towards? And as we do that, and as we come to this table, and as we remember the, the, the life that Jesus created for us in his life, death, and resurrection, I would ask that we remember and ask that as we take this, that God would give us the strength to do what is hard for us as he did what was hard for us.